Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. We're happy to be worshiping together this morning. Let's go ahead and stand as we sing this first song together. It's a little bit of a new one, um, but you guys will catch on quick. It's pretty easy. From the darkness you called my name Into darkness your mercy came You called me up and lifted me up How great is your love You bore my weakness You took my shame buried my burdens in fields of grace you called me
As we reflect on that and how great God is, how great his love is, how great heaven with him forever someday is going to be, we also reflect on our sin, the brokenness that we see every day in this world. Um, we don't often take time to sit in that, um, but this is a chance for us to do that with the light of redemption always before us, always within us. Um, but we get to sit and think about um, the brokenness and kind of the contradictory life that we live with this hope and this light, um, but also this brokenness. And so we're going to read a psalm together that kind of talks about that. It talks about um, our weeping will be turned to songs to joy, um, that the tears in our eyes will be wiped away um, one day. And so we live kind of in the in-between here. Um, and our next song we're going to sing um, is going to talk about turning our eyes upon Jesus. And so let's read this psalm with that perspective, that we turn our eyes always onto Jesus um, in the light of his glory and grace. So let's read this together. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face.
God, that is the cry of our hearts that you are the best thing for us. Not only are we proclaiming that so that we would believe it more, but it is truth as we proclaim it out. Lord, I do pray as we get to gather today and create this substance of worship that it would be pleasing to you. Lord, I do pray your blessing on this. And Lord, I also just thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to gather um, and worship you together. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Redemption Church, Arcadia, welcome. 
Uh, take a minute to, as comfortably as you would like, greet the people around you. Well, welcome in. It's so great to be here worshiping with you again this week. If you're new here, thank you for being here. I'd love to meet you, um, or you can come and meet somebody who can give you all the, que- all the answers to all the questions you might have about our church or just, you know, life at the Connect Desk. Um, but yeah, we would love to meet you. Um, well, we are Redemption Church. We're one church with 10 congregations throughout Arizona. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Um, I'm Trey. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I would just like to, sh- to share two announcements that we have. The first is if you are a woman, then today at 12 o'clock, there's lunch for you. If you're not a woman, that means lunch is not for you, so don't show up. But we have the women's lunch, so come and get to meet the other women in our church, uh, and this is a really cool moment in between. We just had a study for the women's ministry, and we're going to kick off again soon in the future, and this is a great time to just uh, spend some time in fellowship, getting to know people in our church, uh, and building community, which is important. The other uh, announcement is super important. This Wednesday, do we have a slide for that? Yes. 6.30 to 7.45, this Wednesday... Chuck and Hannah are going to give us their backstory. Um, I can almost guarantee you it's going to be harder for them to be there than for you. She just giggled at that, by the way. So um, we, we as a church in the leadership feel it's very important that we gather for this, um, not just to support them and love them, but also that we might be um, encouraged and built up and edified and this is one of the things that our church leadership is really getting behind is these backstories. It's not just their story, but these backstories. Because we want to be edified by what God is doing in our church with the different people in our church. But this Wednesday is a really special one because we really love them and uh, we do want to support them. Uh, so would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The reading is from John 10, 22 through 31. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about, about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is the the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Adrienne, and good morning, Arcadia. Great to see you all. Uh, If you're new, we're glad that you're here. My name is Frank. I'm also one of the pastors here. Um, I don't know, 35 times a year or so, you'll see me up here on Sunday. Uh, But we have, as Trey mentioned, three other pastors. Trey's our next generation pastor. He's the guy just doing the announcements. Uh, Tyler James is running around here somewhere. He's our family pastor. There he is. I see him now. And um, Tyler Thompson, who's our uh, pastor of uh, worship and uh, communities, is uh, currently in California, so be praying for him. Uh, Hopefully he'll come back, he'll make it back. So anyway, um, we are in uh, the Gospel of John, and so we'd like you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10. Uh, It's okay if you do it on your phone, that's great, I do that too, it's very convenient. But also, if you, would li- if you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, we have Bibles at the Connect Desk. They're nice Bibles. They're ESV. 
Uh, and and uh, if, if you would like to take it and keep it, that's, uh, that would be our gift to you. If you ha- know somebody who needs a Bible, uh, take one for them as well. We have those Bibles available for you as well. So, um, And I want you to, if you have your Bibles out, I want you to stay in John chapter 10. Today is unusual in the sense that I'm going to be reading um, three or four other parts of Scripture I don't necessarily want you to go to those parts because we're going to have them up on the screen uh, because our focus is going to be in John chapter 10. So you can just stay there and read the other scriptures on the screen. Uh, If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that it's at this point that I say we have been working our way through the Gospel of John. We've been doing this for a while, taking breaks every now and then. I'm excited this summer we're going to take a break uh, for nine weeks and do the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and then we'll come back right back to John. I think we'll get through chapter 12 before we do that. Uh, But last week is really connected to this week. Chapter 10 is important in the Gospel of John. Uh, because it transitions us from Jesus debating with the religious professionals and that not going well and that debate getting elevated in its intensity and animosity to when Jesus raises Lazarus in chapter 11 and then that's it for the religious professionals. Jesus really doesn't have any uh, debate with them uh, after that to speak of, but rather it is all about uh, Jesus' last week towards the crucifixion and then eventually his resurrection. So this is a transitional um, uh, chapter, and last week uh, we looked at all of the shepherd imagery that Jesus tried to bring about, specifically helping Israel's shepherds, the professional religious people, understand that they're not doing a very good job. They're not good shepherds. And Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, and here's why. And we continue a little bit with that shepherd imagery, but in today's passage, which is actually more than Adrienne read, we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter uh, 10. In today's passage, this animosity between Jesus and the, the religious people, if If it could possibly get ratcheted up further, it does. It comes to a head here, and we'll see that happen. So um, let's start. Let me reread what Adrienne read for us, but also go a little bit further. And we're going to take a pretty big chunk, about 12 verses, uh, to begin with. So John writes, starting in verse 22, At that time, the Feast of Dedication, we'll explain that, took place... At Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Why that detail? That detail because it was winter and it was cold, and this would be the warmest part of the temple, is the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, this is a fascinating question, how long will you keep us in suspense, as if he's been keeping them in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. There's that shepherd imagery again. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, Very important to watch what happens immediately after Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Very closely look at verses 31 and 33, and I'll read 32. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man... Make yourself God. So, back to verse 22. What's the Feast of Dedication? Feast of Dedication was a few weeks after the Feast of Booths. We looked at the Feast of Booths in John chapter 7 and 8. This one is just a few weeks after the Feast of Booths in the winter. The uh, the Feast of Booths was in very late fall. It it celebrated the harvest and also looked back to a time uh, when the Jews were in the wilderness uh, during the Exodus. 
So what's the Feast of, of Dedication? It's an eight-day feast. It's not as well attended as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Passover or the Feast of Pentecost because those were what's known as pilgrimage feasts. They would, they would draw people from literally hundreds of miles away to come in for those feasts. The Feast of Dedication is not a pilgrimage feast, but it was still an important uh, feast. You and I probably know this feast by the name Hanukkah. That's what it is. It's celebrating Hanukkah. So what happened, why they celebrate it, is about 200 years earlier, in the 2nd century BC, around the year 170, there was this king, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was raging against and persecuting uh, the nation of Israel and the Jewish people to no end. And one of the things he did was he desecrated the temple that they had rebuilt a couple hundred years earlier. They, they desecrated the temple by invading the temple, knocking down all of the sacred furniture, and building an altar to pagan gods in there, and removing the altar to Yahweh. This would have been very offensive to those living in Jerusalem. So the Jews naturally fought back. It's known as the Maccabean Revolt. And after several years, they were finally victorious. They freed the temple and the nation from the yoke of King Antiochus. And the Feast of Dedication celebrated this victory, really this miraculous victory, and it celebrates the rededication of the temple, and it celebrates the fact that God is now back in the temple, His presence is in the temple, in His rightful place after the victory. So look at verse uh, 24 again. So the Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, that question is just stunning. Given everything that's happened so far, that is a stunning question that they would ask him. They, these guys have no ears to hear. They have absolutely no eyes to see. And Jesus responds the way you and I would respond, by speaking of his works and his signs. Where have you been? Haven't you seen all of this? And these works and signs and his teaching clearly demonstrate that he comes from the Father. And, and incidentally, this is the God that they all claim to believe in and represent. And, and then Jesus goes back into shepherd mode by talking about how they must not be his sheep because they don't hear his voice. So round and round we go, right? And we talked about the voice thing last week. But again, knowing a voice is way more common than we might think. About 12 years ago... I was uh, with a friend, we were walking up and down, up and down uh, North Mountain, just as a workout. It, it's like CrossFit without carrying around tires or something. We're just walking up and down uh, North Mountain. And, and uh, as I was going down towards the top, as I was going down, he was coming up. And I looked at him and I said, I'm going to go one more time, just letting him know. That's all I said. I'm going to go one more time. About 15 yards away, there was a group of women. And one of the women said, Frank Switzer? And I said, yeah, who are you? And she said, I'm Joyce, Joyce Flores. We went to high school together. So that's 33 years early. And I had not seen Joyce since our senior year. I don't even know if I saw her at graduation. I had not seen her in 33 years. And she said, I recognized your voice right away. So recognizing voice is not necessarily difficult. Here's the thing. It's not that hard to know a voice, to be honest with you. If you're just listening to the radio and one of your favorite um, groups starts playing, even if you've never heard that song, you're like, I know that. I know a heart song, even if I've never heard it before, because I know Anne's voice, okay? That would be Ann Wilson. I don't know her personally. I'm sorry I called her by her first name. Anyway, Ms. Wilson. Okay, you just, you just know it right away, okay? The problem isn't knowing the voice. The problem is it's much harder to follow the voice. And that's what we experience with Jesus, so knowing the voice is one level, and then following the voice is yet another, which we need to really work on. So then Jesus says in verses 28 and 29, God the Father and God the Son work together in collaboration for salvation. Two things here. Number one, salvation is not an act of human intelligence or will, but rather it is a work of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the believer. It's by grace that we are saved through faith. I've asked this question many times before. It's not my original question. It's a question that I used to hear Tom Schrader ask all the time, but it's really effective to help clarify what it means to be saved by grace. 
the, the definition of grace is unmerited favor. Here you go. Here's the question. What can you do to merit unmerited favor? It's not a trick question. There's nothing you and I can do to merit unmerited favor. It's grace that saves us. And certainly we need grace because of our fallenness and the fact that we're never going to be able to do enough anyway. And without God working in our lives, we're never even going to understand who God is. That's the point. He works in our lives before we even have the faith. That's, that's the point of this. But Jesus has done enough. He's gone to the cross. He's been raised from the dead. And all of that is an incredible act of grace. Sacrifice as well. Love as well. But also an act of grace as well. God loves us so much that he gave his son. That's the message. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That we can be reconciled to God through nothing that we've done. Though we try. We try to redeem ourselves all the time. Even if you don't know God, you're trying to redeem yourself somehow. Some way. Good works, virtue signaling, whatever it is. Saying the right thing, not saying the wrong thing. Whatever it is, you're trying, trying hard. God has done all of that for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So Tom used to say it this way, we are saved by God, from God, for God. We are saved by God, from God, for God. God saves sinners. And some of you have heard him say that whole thing about how God, the subject, saves the predicate, so the noun, the verb, sinners, the direct object. And Tom says, if, if I'm going to be anything in a sentence, if you know Tom, you know this is true. If I'm going to be anything in a sentence, I want to be a direct object because a direct object does nothing. The direct object is lazy. The verb acts on the direct object. That's how salvation works. Okay? And then secondly, in his essence, Jesus cannot be divorced, separated, or bifurcated in any way from the Father or the Spirit. So to know the Son is to know the Father. To believe the Son is to believe the Father. To know the Son is to know the Spirit. To believe the Son is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' character is the character of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. And all of this works the other way too. To know the Father is to know the Son and the Spirit. To know the Spirit is to know the Son and the Father. You know, we all hear about insurance companies bundling, right? Well, this is the original bundling package. It's for salvation. Talk about relevance, man. All right. And then you get to verse 30. It, it, it's just such an important verse for us. To make this absolutely clear, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And we have to understand the language here. I don't know, I don't know that without writing a paragraph or even an essay, if you can get at the weight and importance of this language here in the ancient Greek. It's deeper and more comprehensive than Jesus simply saying, the Father and I are together. The Father and I are on the same team. The Father and I think alike. It's much deeper than that. What this statement says is, I and the Father are the same. I and the Father are the same essence. We're the same holiness. We're the same nature. We're the same divinity. We are manifest in three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But everything else is the same. I can't do anything without my Father. The Spirit can't do anything without me and the Father. And by the way, I will tell you, Jesus says, I will tell you that the Spirit is actually greater than me. The Father is greater than me. That's the way it works when you're in perfect, harmonious, sinless community. Which, by the way, we as human beings had for about 45 minutes in Genesis chapter 2. Only two of us got to experience that, unfortunately. Jesus is plainly saying, I am God. And if you can't wrap your head around that, the fact that Jesus is plainly claiming divinity then what you must do is you must ignore verses 31 and 33. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, It's not for the good work that, you're going to, that, you are, uh, that we are going to stone you, but rather it's for blasphemy, because you, being a mere man, make yourself God. 
So in their vernacular, they understood. Jesus says, I am God. Just full transparency here, as much as I can muster. One of the most frustrating things I hear from time to time, and the most challenging part is that I often hear this from people who should know better, like self-professed Bible teachers. When someone says, Jesus never claimed to be God, you simply can't make that case biblically. You just can't. Can't. And then here's the other thing that I, I just think is fascinating. There's some irony in this moment here. The irony is that the Jews are gathered to celebrate the time when God returned to the temple, and now God is standing right in front of them, and they want to kill him. So think about that irony. Look at the next five verses, 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So I'm going to read the first seven verses of Psalm 82, because there's a reference here to Psalm 82. It's a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, little g, he holds judgment. And he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? God is speaking to the little gods of Israel, the judges, the priests, the Levites, all of the people in authority in Israel who are supposed to be leading the nation, he's judging them. We need to remember that when God does start judging, he doesn't start with people who don't know him. He starts with the household of God, and he starts with the leadership of the household of God. That's clear throughout Scripture. Verse 3, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So God speaks of gods, little g, those who have extraordinary power over the people, which God gave them as judges, priests, prophets, and leaders. They are like little gods or even sons of God. And yet, these little g gods, God is saying here in this psalm, failed both the people and God because they eventually went their own way and were leading for their own purposes, for their own justification, for their own interests. They were only self-protecting. So here's what Jesus is saying by citing this psalm which all the professional religious people would have known Jesus was doing in that crowd. There's two things. Number one, he's saying, it's okay that I call myself son of God because that's language that God has used in Scripture and Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture has the final word, not you. But he's also saying this. Secondly, he's saying, I'm nothing like these little g-gods who were both merely men and horribly corrupt using their power and darkness for their own gain. He says, I'm different than them because I'm truly God. So let's talk a little bit about verse 35 where Jesus says in the midst of this point he's making, Scripture cannot be broken. Another way to say this, Jesus tells them, which, by the way, they all agree with. They never dispute this claim when Jesus makes it. But he tells them, every word of Scripture is true, authoritative, and reliable. In other words, there's no buffet or menu approach to the Bible, to God's word, that is acceptable. You cannot accept some parts of the Bible and reject others if you are a believer. You can't. The Bible, here you go. The Bible doesn't contain God's word. 
It is God's word. And that's a huge difference. And we need to understand that because there are many, many people claiming to be Christians who are claiming right now the Bible just contains God word, God's word. It, doesn't, it isn't God's word. We have to search the scriptures to find God's word. Well, that's always interesting to me because then who becomes God? The person who decides which part is God's word and which part isn't. That's a problem. It either is or it isn't God's word. And we don't get to decide, although we would like to, I know. We all would like to decide that. But here's what Paul says in first, uh, Second Timothy. He says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness, that the person of God would be complete and equipped for every good work. Uh, even Peter, if you know the history of Peter and Paul, they didn't necessarily always get along, but they agree on this point, apparently, because Peter writes this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the Bible. That's the Word of God. Old and New Testament. And then finally in verse 38, Jesus reiterates what he said in the previous paragraph when he talks about how his works and his signs should speak for himself as being the work and the manifestation of the God that they're supposed to believe in. But Jesus is rejected once again even more harshly than before. Have we thought about all the times that Jesus gets rejected in the Gospels, especially in the Gospels? Have you sat and thought about just the constant rejection that Jesus goes through? Have you thought about how it doesn't really seem to bother him? And in light of this, have we considered how often we somehow think that we won't be rejected as Christians? And if we are, we think that's really unfair when we are. The reality is that in this world, we're going to have trouble. Jesus said that. In this he said this to his disciples. In this world, you're going to have trouble. To be identified with Jesus generally means that we will be identified as a problem at best and as evil at worst. I read a, an essay in a news channel about 10 days ago, somebody stood up and said, these scriptures and those who follow them are evil. We are called evil by the world. Don't be surprised. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you're going to endure, as if something strange were happening to you. I love that he adds that, as if something strange is happening to you. I love Jesus. How could people possibly not love me? I don't get it. But we really think that way. Jesus never seemed to be bothered by this. He wasn't happy about going to the cross. But he understood that he was going to be rejected. That was part of the deal. And to think otherwise is not living in reality. Those last four verses now in chapter 10. Again, they sought to arrest Jesus, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan River to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man, Jesus, was true, and many believed in him there. I, I just speculate, this is just pure speculation, but I'm guessing it was a little easier to believe in Jesus outside of Jerusalem, away from the religious professionals. Probably a little easier to believe in him there. 
But also, they had a chance to be exposed to who Jesus really is without a lot of interference. I think that might have, that might have helped too. It's important that we're out in the world, that we're part of the world, that there is interference in our life. Jesus says, be in the world but not of the world. You have to go out into the world. That is important to be a light in the world. But there are also times when we as followers of Jesus need to be around other followers of Jesus, encouraging each other, loving each other, bearing one another's burdens, building one another up. Because we can see Jesus working in the midst of that really well also. And it's interesting, again, they wanted to arrest him, but Jesus somehow manages to slip away. Consider the fun wordplay here. Who the Father and the Son save cannot be taken from either the Father's hands or Jesus' hands, but Jesus is able to escape their hands when they tried to arrest him. There's some wordplay there. And understand, John narrates in this passage that Jesus makes one claim. He's the Messiah. He's God. And we need to understand that that gives you and I, like them in this passage, that gives you and I one of only two choices. Either Jesus is or he is not the Messiah. That's it. There's no sort of in-between. There's, there's no way of planting your feet firmly in both camps. That doesn't work. And these people here believe specifically because of the signs and work that Jesus has done and is doing. So two things as we close. Um, if you go back to verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And that phrase there, I'm getting a little grammatical now. That phrase there is in the present continuous tense, which means eternal life starts now, not when we die. It's really important to understand. And that affirms what Jesus said just a few verses before that in, cha in chapter 10, verse 10, when he said, I came to give you life and give it to you abundantly. He says, starting now, you're going to have this abundant life. It doesn't start when you die. Okay? So how, how does that work? Um, I'm, I'm a runner, so I like this illustration. Somebody else came up with it. If you've ever run uh, in a big road race with thousands of people or a marathon or whatever, you know that sometimes, like, I'll just speak autobiographically. So I, I'm going to run a marathon, and they say, how, how fast do you think you'll run it? Well, four hours, okay? That means at the starting line with 30,000 people, there are about 15,000 people in front of me on a narrow road, which means I'm two minutes from the starting line. So the gun goes off, and I run to the starting line, do I stop after I hit the starting line? And the answer is obviously no. But many people understand salvation in that way. They get to the point where they believe in Jesus and then they're kind of like, all right, I'm done, I'm going to heaven. Nothing else to do here, nothing else to see here. That's unfortunate. And I recognize why we do that because it's kind of hard. It's like, okay, where is this abundant life? We talked a lot about that last week about trying to understand hesed love, loving kindness, attached love, and agape love, selfless, compassionate, unconditional love, also an attached kind of love, and really pushing hard into those kinds of love, which our culture really struggles to understand, honestly. Even in, even in marriage and romance, we really struggle to understand that kind of fully committed, fully sold out, thoroughly attached kind of love. That's part of it. But it's also understanding that we're going to have to reorder our priorities once we come to Christ. And, by the way, that doesn't happen just once. I've been a Christian for 34 years. Trust me when I say I have had to reorder my priorities hundreds of times as God has revealed to me how messed up my priorities are. And it's not that these other things that need to go lower on my priority list are bad things. They're all good things. That's the challenge. It's that they're all good things. Career, earning money, education, relationships, all of that stuff. That's all really, really good, but if you elevate it above God, it's going to mess up your relationship with God, and oh, by the way, it's going to mess up your horizontal relationships too. It's going to get in the way of your relationships with the people that you love and people that you really want to be in good relationship with. But properly orienting and listing your priorities is a way to get to the eternal, to the abundant life because you begin to understand that it's only Jesus that can fulfill you in that way that seems so elusive, that God-shaped vacuum in your heart. 
that historically I have tried to fill with food and achievement and notoriety and importance and pride and all that stuff that doesn't work. We need to remember that false gods don't deliver for us. They can deliver when they're not false gods for their stated purpose. When I have a bacon cheeseburger at Zinburger, it doesn't fulfill me the way God can, but it does fulfill me in the way it was meant to. Amen? Right? Well, let's just let it stop there for crying out loud. And now fulfill, now, now fill in the blank, whatever your Zinburger is, fill in the blank, whatever that is. And understand it can't fulfill you that way. And that's, that's how we get to this abundant life, this eternal life that starts now. That's one of the ways that we're able to get to it. It's stated another way by Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Start looking at the world through the lens of Jesus. Let your worldview take on that of Jesus' worldview, and you'll begin to understand how to prioritize things in your life. Here's the second thing I want to wrap with. I think it's amazing that there was one religious professional who was totally sold out for the Mosaic Law, totally sold out for the Mosaic Sacrificial System, totally sold out for his personal power and prestige and status, and he came to Jesus and understood and completely reoriented his priorities, and that would be Paul. This is just a great passage. I love this passage. I'll use virtually any excuse to read it. Here it is. It's Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. That's a terrible insult in their culture because he's talking about the Jewish religious professionals. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he's, here's Paul, a Jew, who's calling circumcision mutilation. Because it's for all the wrong reasons. He's realized. God has taught him. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When you come to Jesus, you don't need to get circumcised or anything else. When you come to Jesus, we become circumcised in a metaphorical sense in that we are now God's people. But that's it. It's metaphorical. It's spiritual. And then he says, regarding putting confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And he did. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives his, his resume. We all have a resume. We all have social media platforms where we're listing how wonderful we are. Just once I want to see a social media profile that celebrates the person's mediocrity. I'd love to see that just once, okay? And here's his resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Very important. Not the seventh, not the ninth. I'm of the people of Israel. That's important. But not just of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, the very best tribe. And then I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to the NBA, I'm LeBron James. That's what he's saying. Prophetically. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. But whatever gain I had in all of those things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Many of you know that word is the Greek word, skubala, which means crap which is a combination of garbage and excrement. And it's a reference to uh, the, the, um, the dump that was outside of Jerusalem that was constantly on fire and also constantly stank really bad. So he's comparing his achievements to that pile outside of Jerusalem. Okay? Yes, there's a curse word in the Bible. Some of you are just stunned right now, I know. I count those things as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here you go. I love this part too. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Yes, my brother Paul, preach it now. I want that resurrection. I want that life. Give me that life. Yes, keep going. Keep preaching. Come on, bring it, Paul. Bring it, bring it, bring it. I want that resurrected life. And I also may share in His sufferings. What? You see the point. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's how important the gospel is to Paul. And it really is that important. If you're here today, and, and this is new to you, and you're, you're wondering about this whole Jesus thing and the gospel and what that means, or... Maybe the Holy Spirit has revealed fully to you what the gospel is, who Jesus is, and what it means, and the Spirit is stirring you. We'd love to be able to talk to you. And if not us, I mean, we'll have people in the wings that you can come and pray with them or talk to them about Jesus. But if not us, talk to the person who brought you. And if you came in here alone, then talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. But let's pray now and we'll go into our time of reflection. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for how the Holy Spirit moved in writing these words and moved the men and women who wrote these words. And Lord God, that, that we would have them even today to be able to know You and follow You and be taught by You to seek after Your wisdom. God, we thank You for that. And we just pray now that Your Holy Spirit, who is here, would be welcomed by every person in this room. That all of us, believer, non-believer, would welcome the Holy Spirit, welcome your Spirit, so that our minds and our hearts might be transformed by who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So a time of, of reflection. We're going to sing one more song together, and we're going to take communion together. If you didn't grab a communion kit on your way in, be, feel free to go and grab one right now. They're in the lobby. Um, that wafer is the bread that Jesus had at the Last Supper. Paul says it's, it's Jesus' body broken for us. And then the juice, which may have turned to wine by now, who knows. <laughs> um, the juice is, is the blood of the new covenant. We take this meal together every week because it's important. Because it's a reminder that we are saved by grace, it's a confession of our sin and our need for that grace, but it's also a celebration that we are in Him. So we can do that now as you finish taking the communion. Please stand and uh, sing with us. And again, if you, if you want to pray or you want to talk to somebody, please come and talk to the people in the wings.
Lord God, I do pray that that would seep into our hearts, and I pray that we would, throughout the week, be formed by this, the message you brought through Frank, and through uh, us getting together um, in worship. Lord, we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for coming and worshiping with us. Let me say the benediction over us, and then we'll go. Uh, this is from Second Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.